You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. And you'll learn very quickly as I look at this text of Scripture that there is not one good actor in the whole text. Not one person who does good, and it may be one of the most tragic texts in Holy Scripture. And the reason that there is not one who does good in the text, and the reason it is so tragic, is because they all have wrong thoughts about Christ. They all think the wrong thing about Christ. Every one of them in this text. And so you'll see quickly how devastating it is when there is not one mouth that speaks the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and points sinners to the mercy of Christ. But let's look at Matthew 27, verses 3 through 10, and then I'll have a word of prayer. Then, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel, brought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field. Lord directed me. Let's have prayer together, please. O God in heaven, we invite the presence of the Holy Spirit this morning, and we pray that you would send him. We pray that you would send him to convict us of our sins, to point us to Christ, and to save sinners and restore backsliders by the power of the preached word. We pray that you would make your word effectual unto salvation this morning, that it would serve to strengthen the church of God, that you would anoint the preaching and the hearing of the word, as we are fully dependent upon you for any good that is done among us. So would Christ in all his brightness and love and mercy Be magnified as he is contrasted with the darkness and misery of a Christless existence. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we've been going through Matthew verse by verse for some time now. And today is the day that we land on this tragic text. 
And we are right into the Passion Week. For those of you who are joining us today, I didn't just randomly pick this text for a baptism service. We landed here because I've been preaching through the Bible, the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse now for about three or four years. And this is where we land today. But we are in the Passion Week. The Lord has had the Last Supper with His disciples. He yielded His human will to God in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas betrayed Him and handed Him over to the authorities with a kiss. Peter has denied Him, and we have witnessed the show trial before the Sanhedrin, and now the Sanhedrin has handed Christ over to Pontius Pilate, which we saw last week. And here today, we have Judas's remorse, but it's a Christless remorse. And it's a Christless remorse that leads to even more sin, namely his self-murder or his suicide. Now, we don't know the exact time of the goings-on of today's text because there is no time indicators as to where this took place, or sorry, when this took place in relation to the timing of the crucifixion. But as Matthew has laid it out in the sequence of events, we might assume that it simply is happening right around the same time that Jesus was handed over to Pilate, although that's not clear. We have in this text a remorse for sin that doesn't lead to Christ, but leads to death. We have in this text the need for hope that doesn't lead to the hope that's available in Jesus Christ, but rather leads to compounded hopelessness. So, so when you're in it, find yourself under the conviction of sin and you find yourself remorseful for your sins, or you find yourself in a place where you need hope, you've got a few places you can turn, but any place but Christ will always compound hopelessness and always lead to death. Judas's error is not that he realized the error of his ways. No, his error is that he didn't come to Christ with his sin and find mercy. He should have come to Jesus. This text, by the way, I think necessarily intersects with so many evils of our society, and I will point them out later in the sermon and show how this text intersects with it. But suffice it to say, as I introduce the text to you, that suicide or self-murder is evil. It's not heroic. It's not martyrdom. It's evil. It's satanic. And that needs to be said clearly because of all the different messages that we're receiving in our own day. But above all, this shows the importance of Jesus Christ because... These men in this text, every character in this text, verses 3 to 10, is Christless. And this is where a Christless existence leads to the dark, hopeless abyss of 
death. And I actually think you can look at this text and see the self-murder of Judas as suicide, and you can see our own society in it. See, why have so many turned to this terrible end in our own world? The more solutions that are offered for depression and despair in our own world, the more suicide compounds. The suicide rates aren't going up with the more mental health treatment that is available. No. Or rather, the suicide rates are not going down with all the mental health treatment that is available and all the call for awareness. No, they're going up because it is Christless treatment that offers no eternal hope, no message of salvation, no forgiveness of sins, no bloody atonement. And without a bloody atonement, the hopeless will seek to atone for their own sins often in their own bloody death. Jesus Christ crucified is the only hope for the nations. If you're here today and you're in despair, and you're walking through the valley of darkness, I want you to know that there's hope for you in Jesus Christ. And I want you to come to Jesus and feast on him for the good of your souls. There's no other real hope. It's just platitudes, superficiality, and psychobabble that the world is offering to you. Maybe a side of medication. But the message of the gospel is pure. It's glorious. It points to eternity. And it makes you right with God, which is the greatest need that you have. So won't you come to Jesus this morning? Even before I start this sermon, why don't you listen to this sermon as a Christian if you're not saved and be saved right now? Or if you're not with Christ and you've backslidden, well, why don't you listen to this as one who has been restored and come to Christ right now and receive this message from the Word of God? Well, today we have this display of evil, and it's divided up into really four sections. It's an interaction between Judas and the priesthood, the Christless disciple and the Christless priests. We have, first of all, Judas's remorse. Then secondly, the priest's uselessness. Then thirdly, Judas's suicide. And fourthly, the priest's hypocrisy. I'm going to make some application throughout, but this majority of the application will come at the end. Judas's remorse, the priest's uselessness, Judas's suicide, the priest's hypocrisy. It goes back and forth between Judas and the priests. The Christless disciple, Judas and the Christless, Christless priesthood. But let's look at Judas's remorse for a moment. Judas, in verse 3, is introduced by his wicked actions. A man, even a child, the Proverbs say, is known by his deeds. You're known by your deeds and by what you say. And Judas is introduced by his wicked actions in verse 3, where it says, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned... He was the one who betrayed Christ with a kiss, and he was the one who betrayed Christ for 30 pieces of silver. That's Judas. And so now he is for all eternity, and his name is written in the Word of God forever, is the one who betrayed Jesus, the traitor. And 
is this traitor, this betrayer, has now had a little bit of time to reflect on what has happened, he experiences regret. It says his mind was changed. So it says, then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. As David Dixon said, he said, the grief is much more than the gain, always with sin. And in this case, the gain of 30 pieces of silver is not worth the grief. And the devil's trick is always to make you see sin as the, as the lure. You only see the lure, you never see the hook. But then, once you finally grab hold of sin, then you only feel the hook and you, and you never taste the lure. And that's the devil's trick. But he returns the money that he'd received, and I don't know what happened here that changed his mind as far as what was said to him or what he saw, but I suspect, because if you remember in Gethsemane, that Judas was the leader of the pack. So he had all these, you know, this great huge throng of people that surrounded him as he came into Gethsemane to have Jesus arrested, and Judas was the leader. And so I suspect that as he led them where, towards Jesus' trial, I suspect that something went off in his mind when he saw the devils of hell unleashed upon Jesus and he saw how wicked this had become. There, there was something that repulsed him about it. And the repulsion of Jesus' show trial, the Sanhedrin's Sanhedrin show trial of Jesus Christ, likely made a switch go off in Judas' mind. And the grief became more than the gain. And so what he does is he returns the money that he received for betraying Christ. It says, and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. So he changed his mind and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver. So the chief priests and the elders were the ones who gave him the 30 pieces of silver. And the chief priests and the elders had given him this so that he would betray Christ. And he did it. He betrayed Christ. He led the charge, showed the people who Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And now he has changed his mind because something has switched. He's realized how evil this was. And he brings the money back to the priests. He wants to make restitution for what he has done. And he names his sin, by the way, in verse 4, saying, I have sinned. Judas says this, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. So he actually names his sin. And he doesn't just name his sin, but he confesses that Jesus is innocent. So this is something if you, if to behold. This, by the way, is, is, a, is, a, is an irony of God because Judas was a hired man. And I, and I suspect that all of the witnesses against Christ were paid off. And here, Judas was paid off. And the price now is not worth it for Judas. So he comes back and admits to the... Sanhedrin, that Jesus was innocent. And if anyone had seen guilt in Jesus, it would have been Judas because he'd been with them for three years and now he had reason to point out guilt, to save face. But he, had, he realizes there is no guilt in Jesus Christ. There was no sin in Jesus Christ. So he comes back to the Sanhedrin, he turns the money in, and then in turning the money in, he um, admits that he done wrong, and he admits that Jesus Christ is innocent. 
And so if there was ever a person in human history that would have been motivated to find a sin in Jesus, it would have been Judas to justify his actions. But he couldn't find a sin. And so we see everything that goes into Judas's remorse, but it's not enough to save him. He changes his mind about the situation. He makes restitution. He is sorrow. He's full of sorrow. He confesses the righteousness of Christ, and even in his confession of the righteousness of Christ, what he's doing is he's rebuking the religious authorities because the religious authorities wanted Jesus declared guilty, and, and so Judas's confession is even a rebuke towards the religious authorities, so he's showing that his grief is greater than his fear of man at this point. Well, this is serious stuff. But yet... His change of mind, his restitution, his sorrow, his confession of the righteousness of Jesus, and even his rebuke of the authorities in his confession is not enough to save him. But I'll say this before I move on, that what Judas expresses here and what Judas does in this moment, change of mind, make restitution, express sorrow, confess the righteousness of Jesus, and rebukes the sins of those who are in authority is much more than a lot of professing Christians do in the church who think they're converted, okay? That, that, that should really make us reflect because the sorrow and the admission of guilt and the seeking restitution of the acknowledgement of the righteousness of Christ is more than many Christians do, so-called Christians, is what I'm trying to say. A lot of Christians can't even admit they're wrong. They don't have the ability to. And that's a sign that they're unconverted. Well, at least Judas can admit he's wrong here. But it's not enough to save him. It's not enough to save him because he just go. it gets worse and worse and worse with Judas. And a passage that comes to mind for me as I think about this is 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, which says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Esau had the same problem. And Esau's problem is recorded in Hebrews 12, verse 16, where it says that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal, for you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. There are people who have tears over their sin who are not repentant. They're ashamed they got caught. They're ashamed of what they did. But they're not going to God with their sins. Judas didn't go to God with his sins. Because he didn't go to God, because he didn't go to Christ with his sins, he went worse and worse and worse and worse. He should have thrown himself at Christ's mercy. And so all of that is to say that if you're under conviction of sin and if you have remorse for the things that you've done, that's not enough to save you. It's not enough to save you. You actually have to go to Christ to be saved. Otherwise, it's just Judas's guilt. And that doesn't lead anywhere good. In fact, 1 Corinthians 7 says it leads to death, and this points that out to us. So there we have Judas's remorse. And as, before I move on from Judas's remorse, let me ask... Just one question of you. When you are convicted for sin, of sin, do you have Judas's remorse or do you have Christian remorse? This is contrasted actually with Peter. 
who had true remorse, Christian remorse, because he went to Christ with his sins. What do you do when you have remorse over your sins or guilt over your sins? Do you go to Christ or do you just wallow in the guilt and the misery of your sins or make excuses for them or whatever have you, blame them on somebody else? Well, Judas had a remorse, but it didn't lead to conversion or to forgiveness. So Judas's remorse, and going on from Judas's remorse, we have the priest's uselessness. The priest's uselessness. Instead of going to Christ, he goes to the priests who are cold, calloused, and useless or worse. Verse 4 says, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They, the priests, said to him, what is that to us? See to it yourself. They essentially, he goes to the priests with this overwhelming sense of guilt, this, this burden for his sin, and they basically tell him, take a hike, pal. We don't have time for you. Is William Hendrickson commented well, and he said, it must have been with sublime unconcern, with scorn and loathing that they uttered these words, Judas had already served their purposes. So they used Judas, these cold-hearted, wicked church leaders had used Judas, they got what they wanted out of him, and when they got what they wanted out of him and he regretted it, they had no time for him. He was their tool. He did their bidding. And when he expressed remorse, done with him. And remember, if you remember the, Galilee, or the, the Gethsemane story, I think it's very likely that Judas had starry eyes when he was encountering the priesthood because he was just a backwoods hillbilly from Galilee. And so here he was in the big lights of Jerusalem and all these fancy priests and and leaders and civic leaders were paying attention to him and doting over him because he was one of Christ's disciples who had access to Christ and they were giving him money. And so it, it was a real stroke to his ego that the priests would pay attention to him. But the reason they paid attention to him is because he was useful. And the minute he was no longer useful, they had no use for him. Oh, well, this is fake Christianity. This is fake religion. It's a religion that uses people and that has no time for people. And maybe you've come from a context or you've experienced this in churches, and what that's done is it's turned you off Christ. Well, just so you know, this turned Judas off Christ too because it drove him even further from Christ. So don't use the hypocrisy of the church and the hypocrisy of, of ministers so-called to drive you away from Jesus Christ. Because Judas could have had the same excuse. Look at these religious hypocrites. I got no time for them. And that's exactly what they were. They were cold-hearted, terrible human beings under the guise of religion, which is the most wicked type of wickedness. But they're out there and Satan puts them there. And so if you've been burned by religious leaders and you've been burned by the church, just remember that Judas was too, and he made the deadly mistake of not going towards Christ, but of going away further from Christ. And these are the people that he dealt with, these useless religious leaders that were absolutely no good. And what I find interesting is that quite often this translates to everyday life. When somebody is using somebody to get what they want, and all of a sudden the person clues in 
and says, oh, I've just been played. And they go back to the person that was using them. They got no time for them. Done with them. No time for that. You gave me what I wanted. I got what I wanted out of you. And what is that to me, is the priest say. What is that to me? And this happens all the time. We'll talk more about it later. I've heard about it many, many times. As I hear of people's experience with sin or people's experience of being taught to sin or led into sin, they're simply being used. They're tools. And they don't even know it because they believe the lies that they're told. So we have Judas's remorse. We have the priest's uselessness. And what do we have next but Judas's suicide? His suicide. Our ancestors rightly termed suicide, self-murder. And that's a phrase we should probably resurrect because of how much this particular sin is now being glorified in our society. We should call it self-murder because that's precisely what it is. There should, there should be a stigma attached to it. Okay, I know some of you that might actually be quite painful because you might have had loved ones that had done this terrible sin, and the fact that it's painful speaks to how terrible of a sin it is because it leaves so much pain in the lives of the people who are left behind. It's selfish, and it is just a terrible thing. But Judas commits suicide, and he's offered no mercy by the useless clergyman, and he does himself in, and he commits self-murder, and instead of casting himself on the mercy of Christ, he casts himself on the mercy of Satan. Matthew Henry said, it says, he said, he throws himself into the fire to avoid the flame. It says in verse 5, and throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. Now the temple is probably the holy place in the temple, so after his interaction with the priest, he probably took his coins his purse of coins, and he probably went to the holy place some in the temple and figured out how to throw them in there, and he threw them in there and left. And that was it for him. But notice the actions that Judas takes in this. He throws them down, he departs, he wince, he's hanged. These action words, throwing down, departed, went, hanged. Quick, 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 and that's the way sin is. One decision leads to another decision, leads to another decision, leads to another decision, leads to disaster. And it's all quick choices, fast choices. Quick, 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 quick. That's sin, no thought, no reflection, just action. Now, before I move on in this text, I want to point out a discrepan or an apparent discrepancy that some like to bring to light, because here it says that Judas was hanged. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 18, it says, now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. So that's the description of Judas's death in Acts 1. Falls face forward, or falls over, and all his bowels gushed out. And in chapter 27 of Matthew, it says he hanged himself. So that's some like to point that out as an apparent discrepancy. Um, there's many ways to explain that, however. And perhaps it was that the rope snapped and he fell. That could have been it. 
And as he fell over after the rope snapped, he fell on the rocks and so on. Maybe the rope was so long, if, I'm not trying to be overly morbid here, but one of the things that is common if the rope is too long is that the person who is hanged is actually decapitated. And if you remember at the execution of Saddam Hussein, probably about 20 years ago, he, he was hanged, but he was actually decapitated in the moment because the rope was so long. And then his body hit the ground. And so that could have been the case with Judas. It could have been a high cliff that he hanged himself on. So there's how you might reconcile the apparent discrepancy. But I needed to point that out. Either way, it is, it is ugly. This is not good. And it is morbid. And he committed self-murder. And it was miserable. Instead of confessing Christ and throwing himself on Christ's mercy, he progressed more in his sin and he threw himself on the rocks. He could have thrown himself on Christ, but he threw himself to his own death. Now, I'll discuss this more later on in the sermon, but I, sh- I, I want to point out that every time somebody in the Bible commits suicide, kills himself, it's always shameful and cowardly. There's not one instance in the Bible where this happens and the person is treated like a martyr. There's not one instance in the Bible where this happens and the person is treated like a hero. They are victims of their own sinful nature, but they are moral agents in their operations. And they make the moral decision to act this way as moral agents in control of their own decisions. And every time it happens in the Bible, it is shameful and it is cowardly. And people are moral agents. And because of how acceptable this is becoming and people, it's, you know, people just succumb to, we're told, they're, they become victims of their own thinking or their own whatever. Well, the reality is, is we all have choices to make. And we are always moral agents before God, and we will always answer for our sins on Judgment Day, no matter how dark the situation or how tempting the sin, we are responsible for our actions. And Judas was responsible for his actions here. Death is never presented in the Bible as the Savior of your soul. Only Jesus Christ is your Savior, and He saves you by killing death through his own death, okay? And and the suicide cult of our society holds suicide up as the Savior. Just do this and you'll get rid of all your problems. No. That might invite more problems. Likely will. Just you have to deal with God in eternity now for your last act as a human being being murder. And all the devastation you leave behind in the act And so it must be denounced in the strongest terms possible. Christ is the Savior, and He saves us by destroying death. And so we've looked at Judas's remorse. We've looked at the priest's uselessness. We've looked at Judas's suicide. And now let's look at the priest's hypocrisy. Then I'll draw some application here. 
We'll look at the priest's hypocrisy. The priests had no qualms by paying the money, the blood money, but they were too righteous to receive it back. See how wicked these people are? Look at verse 6. But the chief priest, taking the piece of silver, so the piece of silver has been thrown into the temple, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. See that? They had no problem spending the money to get the death that they wanted, but they didn't want, they were too holy, too sanctimonious to take the money back. Religious hypocrisy is as old as the fall. And they treat the money like a hot potato that they need to get rid of, so they have a council together. They call a committee meeting. Let's have a committee on how to deal with it in verse 7. Verse 7 says, so they took counsel. And what they do after they take counsel is they figure out how they're going to use it. And they use it to buy a field from a potter. And in buying this field from the potter, this becomes a burial place for foreigners. They were not just too holy to take money that they'd spent on killing someone, but they were also too holy to have foreigners buried in their graveyards. And so they decided, well, we'll do one last thing with this money, and we'll buy a field outside Jerusalem, and it will be the field where we'll bury foreigners, as it says in verse 7. So they took counsel and brought, bought with them the potter's field. They bought it off a potter. It's a burial place for strangers. And because of what was used to purchase this field, it became known as the field of blood. From the blood money, verse 8. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. And the money used to betray Christ to death became a resting place for strangers. And I think that's significant. It's a minor point, but I think it's significant. That even the money... that in this way touched Jesus, the unclean money that, was, that touched Jesus was somehow used for good in the providence of God so that that money was translated into a final resting place for the foreigners and the strangers. And Jesus Christ himself being the Savior is the one in whom the strangers find rest. So if you want to find rest for your weary souls, you come to Jesus. And that's how that money was used. But either way, it was fulfilled as a prophecy. It fulfilled a prophecy. Verse 9 tells us that. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set, by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, is the Lord directed me. Now, there's a bit of a quandary with that text I need to explain briefly. But there's points of that text that more resemble Zechariah 11, verse 13, than they do Jeremiah, and yet Matthew introduces it as a text in Jeremiah. There's similar statements in Jeremiah 19, but some of it resembles more Zechariah 11. And it seems that the two texts of Zechariah and Jeremiah are combined. In Matthew, what he does is he names the major prophet, assuming that people would probably know of the minor prophet, or perhaps the major prophet is representing both prophets in this case. But there are other places in the Bible where that happens, and so apparently it's an acceptable form of communication. In Jeremiah, 
I think this is really important. The passage, chapter 19 of Jeremiah, points to, as Jesus is quoting from, or mentioning Jeremiah, or sorry, Matthew's mentioning Jeremiah in this text here. It speaks to corrupt religious leaders who are hypocrites. It speaks to a, a potter. And it speaks of the valley of slaughter, which is the traditional site of the potter's field, south of the city in the valley of Hinnon. Jeremiah, and then Jeremiah, after speaking of the potter and speaking of the religious hypocrites and speaking of a field in the valley of slaughter or the valley of Hinnon, which is the traditional site of this field, the field of blood, after speaking to all of these things, Jeremiah goes on to say in verse 8 of chapter 19, and I will make this city a horror, things to be hissed at. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss because of all of its wounds. So I think in referencing Jeremiah, although there is a component of the Zechariah passage in it, Jesus or Matthew is pointing out the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. He's pointing out that there's a reference point in Jeremiah to a potter. He's pointing out there's a reference point in Jeremiah to this field. And then beyond that, he's pointing out that this field, something about it leads to the destruction of the city so that the city becomes a horror show. And that's what's about to happen in Jerusalem in about 40 years after Christ's death. The judgment of God's going to fall upon it. But we have the priest's hypocrisy. That's what I'm talking about. We have the priest's hypocrisy. is a complete, on complete display. And hypocrites conceal their wickedness by pointing the sins of others and small little acts of righteousness that hopefully cover their terrible acts of unrighteousness. And that we'll pay the money to have Christ killed, but oh, we won't touch the money that killed Christ. See? Hypocrisy. The religious hypocrites. It's an old thing. It's been going on for a long time. You shouldn't use the hypocrites to keep you from Christ because this is a play of the devil he infects the church. He infects the clergy. It's a play of the devil that's as old as the hills. But in conclusion, what we have here, as I sum up the text, if I want to just sum it up to conclude the text and then get into some application here, we have a miserable scoundrel, Judas, who is used by corrupt, heartless religious leaders. Nobody does good in this passage, not one. And the ending of the passage is tragic. The evil feeds off the evil. It, it plays off the evil. The evil adds strength and speed to the evil, and evil just compounds and compounds in the passage. It just piles on top of each other. And this is what a Christless existence looks like. It's evil you know, like people say, I can just play around with my sin and I'm in control of it. No. It, it takes you. And the ending is tragic. And the only way out of your sin is the mercy of Christ. You don't want to live in a Christless existence where you're not confronted with the mercy of Christ and his call for forgiveness. You don't want to do that. This horrifying, a horrifying end. And I think in some ways, as you look at this text, it represents so much of our society. Why does it get, it's getting bleaker and bleaker and bleaker and bleaker? Because it's Christless. 
very little thought to the goodness of Jesus Christ in this world that we live in. But if you're ever out of place, if you're ever out of place where you find yourself in this level of despair in which Judas found himself, go to Christ and get yourself, if you can, around people who will point you to Christ. This is one of the reasons that I was so adamant that the church should meet during lockdowns. Why? Because the negativity that was being driven into people's heads and hearts was hopeless, and Christians needed to be around each other to rescue them from despair. You don't want to live in the place where you're not interacting with people who are full of the Spirit of God. You want to be around those who will point you to Jesus. And so if, if you're ever in this place, it, it, shouldn't be a, it shouldn't be a shame in the church for you to go up to someone in the church who you love and who loves you and to say, I am in despair and I need some encouragement, brother or sister. And to look for encouragement and have them talk to you about the mercy of Christ or read to you of the mercy and love of Christ in Scripture. Because that's what we need in those times. As we walk through the dark valley of the shadow of death. Judas didn't get that. All as he found was people that wanted to use him. And that's all this world is. People that use each other to use each other. It's transactional relationships. As opposed to offering the free grace of God. And it was, Matthew Henry comments on this. And he points out, this is, this is fact that it was the ancient pagan cultures before the West was Christianized that prescribed suicide as a cure for sickness or despair. Those were the ancient pagan cultures. There was a time when the West was not Christianized. Then there was a time when it was. And the ancient pagan cultures prescribed suicide is to release you from your burdens. That's not Christianity. That's pagan. And I remember when I did missionary work in Nepal several years ago, I was told by the pastors there that there was temples in Nepal. And what they would do is, is they would get people who were in despair to go into the temples and sacrifice themselves to the false gods. Just, right? That's pagan. It's hopelessness. If you're in despair, go become a sacrifice to our gods. And in our, sadly, somebody sent me this this week, a 2017 entry in the Canadian Medical Association Journal, which did a cost-benefit analysis of medically-assisted suicide in the Canadian Medical Journal. Canadian Medical Association Journal. So, hey... If, if this is what they're sell, how they're selling it, is one last act of virtue. People can sacrifice themselves to save the medical system. It's disgusting. It's a Christless horror show. People sit around and they say, how, how has it gotten to the place where, a, where a, a veteran of the Canadian Armed Forces, this was a news item very recently, could ask for some medical treatment I believe it was a lift that this veteran wanted to help. And instead of receiving the lift, was told 
Well, that will take several weeks or months, but would you like to receive medical assistance in dying while you wait? Like people said a few years ago when they brought in this, I remember I was at the meeting and we had a meeting in Cambridge, we had a town hall meeting on, on when they legalized this horrifying act. And there was a medical doctor, an old medical doctor in the room. And he stood up and he said, look, even if the law says doctors can kill their patients, which is exactly what they're doing, even if the law says doctors can kill their patients, the law said that the Nazi doctors could kill their patients and they were all hanged at Nuremberg for it. Every one of them. This is where it goes. Your sin will find you out. Heard recently of someone whose neighbor opted for suicide and the medical professionals show up at the house and suicide the neighbor. Take the neighbor out in a body bag. This is going on all over the place right now. It's pure evil. It's, it's becoming a hellish, Christless landscape, right like this. When Judas goes to the priest for help, and the priest, forget it. Men and women, because it's safe to go to the hospital, you go to the hospital for help, hey, forget it, but we'll suicide you. And by the way, we'll, we'll make it really look really good because we won't call it suicide or self-murder, we'll call it made. Made. Find a really nice acronym. Made. Medical assistance in dying. It's not medical assistance if it's killing you. It's murder. Medical assistance is comforting those who are in pain or healing those who are sick. That's medical assistance. Medical assistance in dying is murder. And tragically, and I'm not trying to be insensitive to events that are happening right now at all. I'm trying to speak frankly into them because I think that's what people need when we're receiving so many terrible messages about this. But tragically, there was an article sent to me this week from the Hamilton Spectator about a Redeemer University student. So Redeemer's historically been a Christian university and a Redeemer University student named Beckett Noble. And I'll read to you a little bit of the article. Beckett Noble was, as they call, a member of the LGBTQ plus students at the university. Why a Christian university would have a group for LGBTQ plus students is beyond me, but they do. Eventually, it says, the article says, Noble looked around and, find, and found it was clear to me that nothing meaningful was going to happen. Also, Noble wanted even more acceptance for sexual perversion on campus. They, speaking of Noble, they don't list him or her as a he or him, they quickly learned about the detrimental effects that conservative religious organizations have on the mental, physical, and academic health of queer people. To potentially affect change in the culture at the university, Noble stated things need to be shared more bluntly because they are incredibly serious and that if change didn't happen soon, someone was going to die. That's what this student said months ago. But that didn't change, change didn't happen, and the article says on November the 23rd, Noble took their own life in the university's counselor's office, tragically. 
An extensive email message was sent to various university officials on November 24th at 8 a.m. that outlined Noble's beliefs, fears, and suggestions to help queer and trans students still attending Redeemer University. So this young lady killed herself in a counseling office and then timed an email to go out the next morning to the administration of the university to rebuke the university for its treatment of um, LGBTQ+. It's tragic. And then the Hamilton Spectator insinuates, or maybe even outright says, but at least insinuates that this is a result of the oppressive environment of a Christian university. What the Hamilton Spectator didn't tell us is that three and a half weeks prior to this young lady killing herself, she had a full mastectomy because she thought that would make her into a man. So she went through, as they call, gender reassignment surgery. Three and a half weeks later, killed herself in the guidance counselor's office at the university campus at Redeemer. The spectator, the Hamilton spectator, assumes that a young lady so committed to a lie that she's a man that she would mutilate her own body and become jacked up on, likely jacked up on testosterone, is able to truthfully discern the sole motive of her own self-murder and present her as some type of a martyr in an oppressive Christian environment. Now, I intend no disrespect for this individual. I intend no disrespect for her family. It's tragic. It's sad. But all of this is to say is that the moment of her death, of her tragic suicide, the Hamilton spectator appears to be dancing on her grave saying, look at those wicked Christians. Look at those wicked Christians. Wouldn't they at least bend on their views of homosexuality? This is horrifying. But here's the thing. If you're going to live a lie to the point where you're willing to mutilate your own body, it's going to send you into dark despair. And we're living in a society where this is happening all the time now. And the people that are going forward with these types of surgeries are then expressing regret and when they express the regret, the people who encourage them towards it want often nothing to do with them, just like the priests in this passage. They have no hope for them when they realize what they've done. And as the people of God, as horrifying as we find this behavior to be, it needs to be us who stand up and say, we have mercy for you. We have pardon for you. There is hope for those who have made a disaster of their lives. Full of regret as you are. It doesn't need to end like Judas ended it. It could end with being born again and receiving the mercy of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of our Lord Jesus Christ. But so many want to offer death as the Savior or proclaim suicide as martyrdom. And that's not what it is. Whether it's for sodomites, or trannies, or the sick, or whoever it is, you're depressed, the Lord Jesus offers you hope, offers you mercy in this dark darkness in which we live. He doesn't want you bouncing around from hopeless person to hopeless person to hopeless solution to hopeless solution. He offers you full pardon, and He promises to send the Holy Spirit of God as the comforter. 
Life hard? Yes, life is hard. David wrote about this in the Psalms. He walked through the valley of the shadow of death. It's hard for us all. It's tragic. Are people tempted towards suicide? Yes, they absolutely are. But is it a good decision? Never. 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 It is to jump from the flame into the fire or the fire into the flame. It's never a good decision. And the gospel is absolutely clear. The sin of self-murder is not your Savior. Jesus Christ is. And our society is much like the priests of Matthew's gospel. The more people are treated, the more they're in despair. The more solutions that are offered, the more suicides there are. They go up and up and up and up and up. The more de-Christianized we are as a society, the more people plunge themselves into this miserable death. But we have to offer the hope of the gospel and shine the light of Jesus Christ. Whatever your sin is, maybe you committed a sin and you thought it would be a good idea, and in the moment you were doing it, you regretted it, and you realized how horrifying it is. Jesus gives you pardon. Come to Christ. Maybe you have not a hope in the world. Well, find a hope in Christ. He promises you eternal life. And maybe you're listening to us and you are one of those who self-mutilated like, a, uh, like they're teaching these young people to do now, the children to do. I want you to know that one of Philip's first converts was a eunuch and found hope in Jesus Christ. That was a person that for whatever reason had decided to be castrated Terrible thing to do, but he found hope in Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel. And the Lord doesn't just promise that our souls will go to heaven when we die. He promises that on the day of judgment, our bodies will be raised again, completely healed in Christ. And our souls will be reunited in the body and will live forever without the taint or stain or stench of sin. No consequences for sin, no stain of sin, no stench of sin None of that, but only holiness and healing and righteousness and goodness and love in the new heavens and the new earth. So we have hope for you. The gospel has hope for you. Christ has hope for you. But this is what a Christless society looks like. Despair and sin compounded that ends in tragedy. But the Christian life, yes, it's full of sorrow and pain at times. But the Christian life, the Christian is one who perseveres in the sorrow and the trial because we have that hope of seeing the beautiful face of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's have prayer together. Oh God in heaven, we pray for your blessing upon all who are here today. Would you comfort those who are in despair? Would you pardon those who are full of regret and remorse? And would you give all who are here that sweet and precious taste of the Lord? Taste, know that he is good. In Christ's name, amen.